Welcome to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, aka Possibility Man. We are committed to bringing you guests who strive to better people's lives and serve as a force for good in the world. Our guest today is Dr. Benita Fernando. She is a board certified OBGYN physician and a fellow of the American College of Obstetric and Gynecology. She has treated thousands of patients and delivered hundreds of babies. She has a heartfelt interest in the health of women and children, education in the health and wellness arts, as well as physical fitness. Dismayed by what she considered to be a broken healthcare system, Dr. V, as she is affectionately called, left traditional practice to help patients learn how to address the root causes of disease. Dr. V, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me, Possibility Man. Thank you. I I appreciate that. Look, I have a ton of questions to ask, but first, this is the reminder to our listeners and our viewers. Follow, like, share, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you find it. Dr. Vernado, got to start with this big question for you. What attracted you to medicine in the first place? Oh, wow. That's a great question. First of all, thank you for having me. And thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. I'm, <laughs> I'm not called Dr. V <laughs> just because most people can't pronounce it. So thank you for having me. Um, yeah. So I, I've, I'm realizing that everybody has a purpose, right? And God has a purpose for you and he doesn't just drop you into the world. So I actually come from parents that are in medicine. Mom's a nurse and my dad's a dentist. So that probably has something to do with it. But early on, I, um, I found a book about um, how my body was gonna change as from a girl to a woman. And where babies come from and how the babies develop inside the, the womb. And I just thought it was amazing. I thought it was, was phenomenal. Um, and I realized that, you know, I want to do this when I grow up. Also, I used to have to, let me, used to have to. <laughs> I had to work in my parents' office after school. And I mean, I wasn't working, working, but, you know, filing or, you know, greeting people when they come in and people would come in hurting and leave feeling better and appreciative. Uh, so I think putting those two things together got me interested in medicine. That sounds good. Now, you just said something a few moments ago that I, I can't pass up. You mentioned that everyone has a purpose in life. Have you long felt that way? Or is this something that has come to you as you have uh, matured? Mm. You know, huh, you've got great questions. And no, I don't think I have. I think I felt that way, but there was no emphasis on it. I felt like I had a purpose, but I wasn't asking my patients, do you think you have a purpose? I mean, no, no doctor really does. Uh, but yeah, now what I have learned as I've entered into lifestyle medicine uh, and through my own journey is that you really have to start with that purpose first. And once you get on track with that, you you become fulfilled and really all of the other building blocks of health and happiness seem to fall into place. So, yeah, I definitely will say I didn't start out like this. I have clearly evolved. 
I got you. So what drew you to obstetric and gynecology as a specialty? <laughs> well, it definitely wasn't the work hours. I don't think I really, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really take that into account. Um, you know, I could be every doctor. I, I love psychiatry. I love primary care. And OBGYN was perfect. It had a good blend of that. Also, you do surgery. So when you when I was on the rotation, it wasn't like OBGYNs were always in the office. You know, they would be in the office and then they would go do a delivery or, you know, they would go do surgery for the latter half. So it, it, it was enough variety that kept it exciting. And it also helped you be um, be a crucial part to to women uh, and the, the health needs that they have. Mm -hmm. So did you did you enjoy and this is this is a broad kind of question here. Did you enjoy medical school and do, do you enjoy being a doctor? Take <laughs> us into that world. You know, I wish more people would ask me that because I uh, I was I was raised going to church on Sundays. And then when I went to college, I didn't go to church anymore like that. Uh, but when I got to medical school, I was like. I kind of got resaved again because I was like, God, I am not going to make it. I am not going to make it. And I literally wanted to quit every six weeks because that's when we would have our test. And I tell people, I tell students who want to become doctors, you know, it used to be cramming for us was, you know, maybe a day or two before the test. In medical school, cramming is two weeks before the test. Um, so it's very rigorous. Um, it was really funny. I had a best friend in elementary school and we lost touch because she moved away. I did not reconnect with her until the summer before medical school. And it just so happened we were both going to be in the same medical school class. Kid you not. And we, we got each other through medical school. So it was hard. I can't say I enjoyed it. Um, I did learn a lot though. And when I got in the clinicals, I knew I was in the right space, but I definitely think there were things that God put in place to help me make it through. And I knew that while I was there. So I didn't give up because I knew that he wanted me to finish and that my motto in medical school was this degree is not for me. This degree is not for me. And I knew that with this degree that there would be some spaces that the only way I would get into the room is with this MD. And I wanted to get in spaces so that I could help other people uh, that look like me. Mm -hmm. I see. Glad that you continued on your journey. Well, you know, some professionals have told me that they've experienced what they call the imposter you know, syndrome. And, and not only doctors, but across the board in all kinds of positions. Yeah. Did you ever come across that, you know, yourself or with your classmates where they felt that, they, you know, should I be here? Do I belong here? Am I an imposter? Uh, you know, I didn't really feel it until I got out practicing because, you know, when you're a student, you're not supposed to like, quote unquote, know everything because you're still a student. But once you get out and you're practicing and your patients are your patients, that's when it's really, you know, the book stops with you. Uh, I never thought that I didn't belong. Um, it was, imposter syndrome is tricky. It's really tricky because you have evidence that you belong, but in your mind, yeah. <laughs> you disregard the evidence. Uh, and really what I've come to realize is that it's fear. 
And so in addressing fear, I feel like I've cured my, my imposter syndrome. You're a smart lady. You're right. It's in the mind. It's, it's false evidence. Is that the truth? It is false it's, evidence. Yeah. False. yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's so yep. good. Yeah. So now early in your career, or maybe it was late in your career, I know at one point you did some talking and training about burnout. What prompted you, an OBGYN doctor, to start talking about burnout, not only to your colleagues, but also to other people? Wow. Yeah. COVID really highlighted a problem that we had in our medical system. Mm -hmm. And and it just wasn't in medicine, it was in all aspects of life for, for most people. But the way that our, our profession is set up, it's really not set up to promote wellness of the practitioner. And mm -hmm. I say that because I would get up early in the morning go see patients in the hospital. And, and my day would vary, but this is probably one of the, you know, the tougher days I would have. Um, I would get up, see patients in the morning, out by seven. Maybe I'd work all day. At lunch, I'd run over to the hospital and come back, still see patients or have a surgery. Then I'd be on call all night. And I might be up, you know, till three o'clock in the morning and get two hours of sleep. Wow, also I have to do my notes. And all of these things. And this was commonplace. Like, this is just what we do in medicine. And it's too much. I didn't sleep well. I wasn't eating right. Um, the stress level is, is crazy. And so I became burned out. I became burned out. And it was very evident that I was going to have to do something about it. The culture of medicine is one that you don't, you don't ask for help. You don't show signs of weakness. Uh, you know, they're even, I mean, you know, especially OBGYN, it's a very litigious, you know, specialty. People want us through the OBGYN doctor. So if you say, oh, I'm depressed or I'm tired or I'm really not happy with my position, we feel most practitioners feel like that will reflect poorly on me. So the culture is not to say anything about it. And I just felt like it was debilitating enough to me. Um, that I wanted to get that message out there and, and help my colleagues. And COVID was the perfect time to do that. Uh-huh. I know you've talked about that your COVID epiphany. Is that what you're referring to? What you just what you just shared? My COVID epiphany was more personal for me. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. that desire to leave um had been sitting there for about five years that, you know, I knew I had to make some some changes, but when I got to spend more time with my family, my life slowed down a little bit, I realized that that's what I needed. And so the epiphany was really actually saying that, just showing me what my life could be. Because again, you know, I've trained 12 years, right? Put in 12 years and I'm thinking this is what I'm supposed, what it's supposed to look like. And that epiphany showed me that it doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want to look at healthcare with you uh, as we continue this conversation. Um, you know, when I introduced you, and we've already talked about it, that you're a certified OBGYN doctor, you know, you're board certified. Yeah. And now you're also, you know, a lifestyle medicine doctor. So mm -hmm. tell me about healthcare. And, you know, let's explore this expansion, you know, in your work as as a doctor. Absolutely. If, if you get the question, so my question is, uh, what is it about healthcare that prompted you 
to expand to, let's say, lifestyle medicine? Yes, very good question. So when people go, and I'll speak for myself, when I went to medical school, I wanted to help people. But the culture, again, the practice of medicine has really kind of boiled down to short visits in the office. I mean, in 15 minutes, you really don't have a lot of time to address people's needs. And so lifestyle medicine, the way that we look at helping the patient is empowering the patient. And we help them figure out these lifestyle pieces that are going to treat, manage, and prevent disease. And this, is, this statistic blew my mind. 80% of chronic diseases are preventable through lifestyle. 80%, but we don't spend any time really, we don't have the time to really help people change their lifestyle and support them through it. And so, you know, as I was seeking and figuring out, you know, what I needed to do to be fulfilled, I ran across, across a movie called um, Forks Over Knives. And it, it talked about the sickest cardiac patients who really weren't surgical candidates and how they reversed their heart disease just by their diet and lifestyle. And that kind of started me on the journey. So lifestyle medicine is attractive to me because it really helps patients get to the root cause of the problem and get, get rid of the pills. You know, most people don't know that diabetes is reversible with lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Most people don't know that. And yet, and, and the other thing that I like about lifestyle medicine is that they've actually done the studies to prove this. So for example, diabetes, most people get put on a medication called metformin, but they did a study that if you change your lifestyle, you know, your diet and exercise, that is actually more effective than metformin. So mm -hmm. why are we putting people on medicines that they have side effects with and not helping them get these lifelong changes established um, that don't have the side effects. They help them in many other ways than just appeal and is sustainable and the, pa the patients feel accomplished. So I was like, you know what? There, there are enough people who are doing pap smears and delivering babies and there are not enough people doing this. So that's when I decided to make the shift. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you said that. So let's look at this a little more closely. I think that, you know, in Western medicine, allopathic medicine, and you're the doctor, I'm not. It seems to me though, that there are chemical solutions to biological problems, mm. hence a prescription drug. And I'm wow. just wondering, is, is that, is, is, you know, is that, do you see that in terms of you go to the doctor, you get a script, which is for a drug, which mm -hmm. is mostly a chemical to solve a biological, how do you see this? This is just where I'm looking at it now. How do you see yeah. it? Yeah. And, you know, there, now that I'm out and exploring, there are many other ways to address problems. I'm impressed that you know allopathic medicine. I didn't learn that until I got to medical school. <laughs> but in allopathic medicine, that's just the way that it has evolved. Uh, but in Chinese medicine, that's not what they do. You know, acupuncture, that's not what they do. And so I definitely feel that there's a place, like in my case, for women who have heavy periods and they're hemorrhaging. You know, no, they don't have time to change their lifestyle because they're like a period away from needing a blood transfusion. So there's definitely a, a need for those medications. 
Um, what I would like to see more of is use the medications as a bridge until the patient can get to a point where they can use other modalities that might be better for them and more effective um, that you know won't have all of the side effects. I, I've been on several podcasts and interviewed uh, several people and, and we all agree there's a, a harmony. It's just like having tools in a toolbox. I think that pills, chemicals are one tool. We just need to incorporate all of the other tools to really uh, serve the patient the best. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. And I do want to underscore it with you. You know, when I talk to people, doctors like yourself, I may come across as being anti-doctor, anti-medicine. That's not the case. You know, if yeah. you fall off a cliff, yeah. You know, and you need a doctor and a treatment, you get that treatment, right? We're not saying Absolutely. not to do yeah. it, but I think you said it very well when you said, you know, they, there are many tools in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. Dr. Fernanda, as I was saying, you know, it's wonderful to have tools for doctors to have tools in a toolbox and to be able to pull out the tool they need to address the problem that the patient may be having. But let me ask you this though, is there a place in medicine for a patient to feel that in this case, he can be empowered to be a co-partner with the doctor to try to find a solution for himself. Is there a place for that in medicine? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, there's a place for that in medicine. However, I think people will have to change the way they look at their healthcare providers. They look at the doctor as kind of telling them what to do and they do it. We're seeing a shift now where patients, they have access to the internet, they've got Google and they've got some information. So they come with questions, which I think helps build uh, that partnership. But you definitely have to advocate for that. You definitely have to advocate for that. And you also have to understand if you're gonna be a partner, it might not look like what you want. You might want to sit down for 30 minutes and talk to your doctor. The reality is, is that they don't have that time. They just don't have that time. And so what ends up happening is you have to come back for multiple visits, which means you have to pay a copay every time, right? So, or you can email your doctor through, you know, the medical record, the records that we have now. Um, but it's, it's not going to be, uh, what we see as a traditional partnership. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's think about this from the standpoint of the patient. And I think you've given a talk about, you know, patients need to know how to. Does that sound familiar? I think I captured that somewhere as I looked at you. But let me, let me, yeah, let me rephrase. Yeah, I talk about that often. Okay, good. So when you think about the patient then, if you're talking to, to patients, how would you complete, you know, this, this a phrase, patients need to know how to get what they came for. Mm -hmm. They need to know how to get the answers that they came for. I was just on a podcast and I'm saying this because if somebody listens to it, you know, it's a duplicate, but it was really good. I'd never said it before, but I always tell patients, I work for you. Like you're paying me money to help you. So why would you come to the doctor and you don't leave with what you need? And my analogy was if you step up to McDonald's and you ask for the Happy Meal, you place your order, you give them the money, and then they don't give you anything 
you wouldn't walk out with nothing. You would say, where's my happy meal? And so often I feel like patients are like, well, I didn't, I couldn't ask that or I didn't feel comfortable. And so I'm really trying to get people to understand that the medical professionals work for you. And if you don't feel comfortable with the one you have, then try to find someone else. Doctors are human, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, we're all human. Our personalities don't always blend. It is okay to leave your doctor. Their feelings will be okay. Their feelings will be <laughs> just fine. So patients, get what you came for and get it from whom you want to get it from. I like that, Dr. V, but you know what your doctors have done to us in our culture, especially the Western world, is to present yourselves not as people, but somehow as a godlike figure. So therefore, when the patient goes to the doctor, a lot of patients, you know, it's like they become children and then listen to what the doctor tells them. So that's what I've found. You can respond to me, but you that's know, what I have found yeah. in talking to people. Yes, Stephen, <laughs> I'm gonna push back because I think people come in there with that notion and I'm not a godlike figure in any way. Like when I speak to, that's why I was always behind because I would come in, how you doing? Oh, how's your, how's your dad or how are your kids? And we're just talking, having a conversation. Uh, and I felt very approachable, but some patients still felt intimidated. Uh, and it's it's just the it's the white coat it's it's the the nature of the relationship. I mean, you, you're right. Some people do become children, and their grandmother may be really sweet and as cool as she can be, but she's still your grandmother. And there's just certain things you're not gonna say or do in front of your grandmother. And so I really that's another thing that I like about lifestyle medicine is that you actually get to partner with people and get to know them. Um, through my social media, I've tried to share personal things that, you know, humanize me as well. Uh, I'm, I'm serving in the community that I grew up in. Uh, and so people know me as Benita, not Dr. Vernado. And so, you know, it's really been easy for me to feel comfortable and to be authentic when I show up in the workplace. And that's wonderful. So, so from your standpoint, then, it is possible for patients to be empowered when it comes to their health. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And okay. if doctors are, are being honest, they actually appreciate that. I sometimes think though that patients don't know how to do that. Like they'll bring an article from Google that might not be from a reputable source. Right. And then they want to tell the doctor, well, this is what I want to do. Um, and so if the trust is not there, then it becomes somewhat of an adversarial visit because they're saying, well, Google says this and you're saying that. And we, you, we say, okay, well, Dr. Google can fix that. <laughs> go ahead and, and go to Dr. Google's office. Um, and so, yeah, there is a way to do it. Um, but again, you know, definitely you wanna have that relationship there. But guess what? If you ruffle some feathers and you make people mad, that's okay too. That's yeah. fine because you're getting what you came for and, and that's what you're entitled to. Yeah, and I think you know, that's a good point though. Uh, patients should also know their limitations. If you're not a researcher, you know, I mean, Google is like, what I like to say, Google is like a boy's bathroom in high school. Anyone can put something <laughs> on the wall, you know, so yeah. But uh, Dr. V, so I want to turn to medicine 
uh, not turn to continue this conversation here about medicine. And you have talked about the six pillars. I hope that I have this right, that you've, you've talked about the six pillars of medicine. And I'm not going to ask you to go through all of them, but what are some of the pillars of medicine and, of course, well, health, good health that you that you look at? Absolutely. So I'm not going to say I came up with it. Um, okay. I, I am board certified lifestyle medicine physician. And so I am in the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which they these are their six pillars. And, and I add in a seventh. But they're really the basic, simple things that we need to do. I mean, baseline. Like we're starting from here and then we add in maybe medications or maybe therapy of some sort. Uh, simple things like sleep. Stephen, I cannot tell you the number of people that would say I'm tired and you ask them how much sleep they're getting and they're getting four hours, but yet they want a sleeping pill or they want something. They want you to check all this stuff. And I'm like, well, how about you just get more sleep first before we add on all of these other things? So the basic things, sleep, nutrition, exercise, stress management um, are, are really the fundamental um, baseline um, things that you can do to optimize your health. Yeah. Now, you know, sleep is a big one. And um, most people, though, would probably say, acknowledge, well, I don't get enough sleep. Or I have difficulties falling asleep, but they don't know what to do about it. So I'm going to ask Bye. you, Dr. B., what can someone do about getting more sleep? What are a couple of things they can do about that? So let me just say that there that is a very complex um, system. And there are a lot of things that can contribute to one's lack of sleep. However, the basics, um, making sure that you have um, good sleep hygiene. And what we mean by sleep hygiene is that uh, when you're going to sleep, you're not in a bright room. You don't have a lot of noise. Uh, you have a routine. Just like when we're raising babies, you know, we give them their bath, we read their story. That's telling their brain that it's time to sleep. Also, avoiding, I know people hate to hear this, avoiding social media, emails, all those things that, that, trigger that or give us that blue light that tells our melatonin levels melatonin helps us fall to sleep that decreases the melatonin level so then it's hard for us to sleep it's hard for us to sleep the other thing is that some people don't know is that there are certain substances that can interfere with your ability to get good sleep and uh let me cap let me put a little stop here for a second there's a difference between sleep and restorative sleep. And mm. so the restorative sleep is in the deeper, there's four uh, stages in the sleep cycle and rest restoration happens in three and four. So there's some substances like uh, caffeine and alcohol, 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 that inhibit your ability to get into that deep sleep. A lot of people will drink a glass of wine at night to help them go to sleep. And it's actually making the problem worse. Uh, and so that's why it's complex and you have to figure out what's going on. Sometimes people have uh, mood disorders or they have uh, trauma or they have anxiety. And, you know, you really have to figure out what, um, what the body is being exposed to when it's time to go to sleep. 
Yeah. Okay. There's a lot there. I'm going to come back to some of them if you have time. So you also mentioned nutrition as a pillar. Um, talk to us about, about nutrition. What kinds of foods, for example, are just good for us? You know, is it, and I'm not going to tell you, but guide you here, but what, what kind of foods are good for us? And what are some foods that may not be so good for us? I think most of us know intuitively <laughs> what is good for us. <laughs> it's hard to get the good stuff in, but yeah. So we know more about the gut microbiome, mm. the bacteria that live in your GI system. And what feeds them is plant protein, fiber, they're different types of bacteria. So the different colors, think of it as the different colors of vegetables are feeding different types of bacteria. And so you want everybody to be happy on the playground. So you wanna eat a variety of fruits and vegetables, all different colors um, to feed the gut microbiome. You want to avoid you know, fried foods and grease, because that is going to contribute to elevating your cholesterol levels. Mm -hmm. You want to avoid going through somebody's drive-through and letting other people cook for you because <laughs> you don't know how much salt they've put in there, um, how much fat. And, you know, lastly, sugar, 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 sugar. We have to really kind of eliminate that. Um, and I feel like when we cook for ourselves more and when we get more educated about the benefits of it, uh, we'll, we'll do better with that. But currently, right now, if you're relying on the manufacturers of food and on people who have drive through windows or restaurants, sugar, salt, and fat are a triad that's going to be in their foods because that makes it delectable, makes you want to come back. Uh, and but it's really not serving you in the end. Yeah. So is would you say that education then education about nutrition is one pathway for patients to empower themselves? Because what you just said is so important about just making those choices about vegetables or fat, you know? You know, I think education is important. Okay, if any, if you're eating anything in a bag, know that that's processed and that's probably not what you should be eating. However, I think people can know all of that. I knew all of that as a doctor. I knew I wasn't supposed to be going through the drive-thru every night, but my lifestyle wasn't set up so that I had another option. So I really think the money is helping people figure out how to incorporate these pillars into their life and how to help them figure out what do I need to add or what do I, do I need to remove so that I can eat well, mm -hmm. so that I can sleep, so that I can have time to spend with my family and friends. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and some people report, and, I, and I've talked to some of them who say that, you know, they remind us that there are food deserts and that's true. There are food deserts. And they say that there's some people who lack the ability to make better choices, you know, in terms of their nutrition. That could be true. My question to you, would you say that that's, you know, if you were to do look at this in terms of percentages, would you say that it's like 50-50 or is that like a small segment of the population who may be on a food desert or who may lack the ability to make better choices about their nutrition? That's a good question. I don't know what the percentage is, but I know in 
low socioeconomic areas, that's very high. That's like 80%, 90%. And I don't, you can, don't fact check me on it, but I know it's really high because those are the mm -hmm. communities that are affected by it. Um, most of us don't live in food deserts. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're obese because of, <laughs> this is the land of plenty. And yes, we're also eating the wrong things that um, don't um, contribute to our health. I feel, you know, I do gardening. And so also on my social media, you know, in the spring and summer, I'm posting pictures about how you can, you know, grow your own food. And anybody in a food desert, and we're starting to see this, that community gardens are popping up. And not only are they helping people get proper nutrition, but it's building community. People are getting outside in nature, which helps with their, um, with their mood. They're getting their hands in the dirt. They're building relationships with their children or family members. Um, so I feel like when we do these kind of basic, like back to back to basics kind of things, that they have an effect on us that's just not um, just not one one facet, one sided, multifaceted. Yeah. That's for sure. Um, you know, self-determination theories shows up in lifestyle medicine from the little check-in that I did. Yeah. So people can realize that they, they have more power than they than they may know at the time. Um, you, you also mentioned relationships, you know, as one of the pillars um, of medicine. And, and you mentioned, you know, you've said from lifestyle medicine. Um, talk to me about that because I also want to extend it to mental health, because you've brought that up as well. Sure. So relationships, why is that important? Wow, relationships are key to our happiness, to our sense of fulfillment. Um, isolation leads to, uh, to stress. Uh, and I think COVID really kind of ushered this in because, okay, we can't go see the grandparents or people, certain people are, um, were by themselves. And we saw what happened to them mentally. Um, you know, the lack of stimulation, the lack of joy can lead to depression. Sure. There has a, a study, oh man, that has, Harvard has done this study. And it, it's just now, I'm just now starting to see it on TV, but they have followed men from the ages of 19 to now they're in their 80s. And what they showed is that, well, first of all, they're trying to figure out why do these men live to 80 and they go back and, you know, they're looking at their cholesterol levels and you know, met medical conditions and where they lived and all of these things. And the one thing that contributed the most to them living a long life was their relationships. Did they have relationships where they felt supported? Did they have relationships that they knew they could count on people? It wasn't their cholesterol level and it wasn't their blood pressure. It wasn't. And that's what I mean by basic stuff. You know, take time out to go out with your friends or, you know, pick up the telephone. Um, we've, we've, I'm trying to do better, but we've implemented a game night with the family. Um, that's one thing that, you know, we really enjoyed uh, that happened during COVID. Um, so we cannot underestimate that. And, you know, the bottom line is that happier people are healthier people. Happier people are healthier people. So you really have to get that component in place. That's for sure. And, and that's another thing I like about uh, lifestyle medicine and, and those of you who are involved in that. Um, and this brings up the subject of um, positive psychology. Does that show up in your work, especially in terms of relationship? 
Oh, absolutely. And that's that's the seventh pillar that I would like to add. And, and I think we're working on that as a as a group. Um, positive psychology is the simple stuff like having meaning in your life. Yeah. Gratitude, having purpose, um, taking time to meditate and journal. These are those things that are going to help create a positive outlook because the way that you're looking at something ultimately does affect your health. Now, there are conditions like depression where, you know, the chemistry in the brain is making you look, making it seem like it's a cloudy day when the sun is shining. But, you know, and and I, I'm saying this because I think the culture understands it now is that you know, if you think negative thoughts, the negativity is attracted to you. And so if all of your glasses have, you know, help you see sunshine, then that actually helps you um, overall physically and mentally. Yeah. And um, as a doctor, if someone were to come to you and tell you that they are depressed, what are some things that you may say to them? So I usually like to do a scale. Um, you know, depression isn't like, or, or the field of psychiatry, psychology, isn't like other fields because they don't, they can't do a lab test to see if you're depressed. I can do a blood test to see if you're anemic, but that's not the case with depression. So I would just talk with the patient to see why they feel they're depressed. And then we have different um, screening tools that help us figure out if you are depressed and if so, how depressed you are. Uh, it's, you know, you say if a patient came to me and said they're depressed, the reality, Stephen, is that most people will never say that. Hmm. They might come in saying I'm tired or my stomach hurts or I've got headaches, but they don't say I'm depressed. Now, if they've been in, you know, the mental health, you know, system, then they have language for that. Um, and the stigma is not there. But for the most part, there's stigma with it. Uh, and, and it's just something that people don't want to, to share. I mean, I've clearly seen that some people are depressed. You know, you're losing weight. You're not talking, you know, not doing the things that you love anymore. And, you know, sometimes it can be brushed off as, oh, I'm tired or I've got a lot going on at work. Mm -hmm. Instead of acknowledging that, yes, maybe I am depressed. Yeah, yeah. So how do you think society is doing with the stigma, especially here in the United States and perhaps the rest of the Western world, uh, with depression and anxiety and, and other mental health issues? How are we doing? I, I think it's getting better. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know if I can say that medicine, you know, the medical system is driving it. I mean, there are apps now that you have, you know, that you can, you know, get a therapist relatively quickly. And I don't necessarily think that's from the medical system. I think the private sector has helped a lot with that. Um, there's also, you know, lots of apps to help you meditate, you know, like, like Calm and, you know, these other things that people are starting to reach out to and they're starting to see a benefit from it. So they're starting to maybe implement some of these things and in doing so, they see the value and the importance of, you know, good mental health. Mm -hmm. Well, over the last few decades, I've been, in fact, I'm happy about this, seeing doctors and coaches, you know, life, you know, personal development coaches talk about subjects like mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that you, you, you speak about this, why is this important to you? And what do you share? Mindfulness. Yeah, so... 
again, it's back to basics. It's back to the little things. Appreciating and tapping into your mind, as I would like to, to say. Um, we know that, you know, meditation, it helps to calm your brain. You know, taking deep breaths and being aware of your breath, that actually has a calming effect and help, can help with stress management. Journaling, and some people don't like to journal, but journaling is also a good way of getting in touch with what you're feeling. Uh, and so <laughs> it, it, I kind of think, and, and I'm just being transparent here, probably at the beginning of my career, I would not have seen the value in any of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> None of it. Um, but as I have evolved, I see it. Um, purpose. Oh my gosh, that's huge. That's so huge. Because a lot of people, if, if you're not mindful of your needs, you're stuck in places where you shouldn't be. And they make that makes you unhappy. And ultimately that affects your health. Yeah, yeah I like that. Uh, so now I want to move on. I know that you've been involved with the No Better do Better Book Club. Is, are you still involved with that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So why did you start it or are you just a member of the book club? Or I actually started it. Mm -hmm. I actually started it. And <laughs> it's an interesting thing. I was really, you know, as I left medicine, my plan was in, instead of practicing medicine full time, I just wanted to do something called locum tenens where, you know, mm -hmm. you come in a few days a week and have flexibility, you go to different locations. Um, but I knew I had a calling to create something and I kind of got stuck and someone said, what would you do, um, you know, that that isn't tied to money like what's something that you love to do and I love mm -hmm. to read and I love for people to read together and and get knowledge and so it has been really fulfilling to kind of just be a part of this and hear from other women um, and get other perspectives and also you know if I was an avid reader growing up but I didn't have I don't have as much time and mm -hmm. so the book club actually forces me to read or to listen or to listen um, I was just going to put out a post. We read Finding Me by Viola Davis um, mm -hmm. last month. And I didn't read that when I listened to it, which it was phenomenal. And she actually just won a Grammy for it. And that made her an EGOT. Um, wow. And so we all agreed on, you know, the inflection of her voice and how she told the story. Um, and it, it just, it makes you feel good. And, and anytime you can get in community and build these relationships, it's, it's going to be an, an awesome experience. Yeah. So why did the, why did the title uh, from Maya Angelou actually, right? No better, do better. Why did that title attract you? Why that? Oh, man. You don't know what you don't know. But when you know, then you will do better. And I think a lot of times people, and I'll just speak for myself, you know, you're in situations that you know aren't good, but you don't know how to get out of. Yeah. And so that's what I love about education. And that's why I'm always going to tell my patients and anybody I'm connected with that you don't have to live this way, that you actually have a choice. But if you don't know you have a choice, then you're going to just accept your reality for the most part. Um, so I love um, I love that that phrase by Maya Angelou because it gives yourself some grace. I mean, you're giving yourself grace because you didn't know any better. But now that you know better, you're going to do better. 
And really, you know, that's what life is about. And I, I've learned, you know, as a type A medical student, and I used to say I was type B, but I've realized I was type A. Um, we don't give ourselves a lot of grace. We're very hard on, on us, uh, on ourselves. And so that really, that really doesn't serve you well um, mentally. Right. I know that uh, a lot of women are attracted to this club, but look, we men want to read too, you know, can we get in or, or is it, uh, is it women only? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's so funny, Stephen. You know, I'm just starting out, um, but it is a safe space for women to talk about things, um, A, that men might not understand, or we don't necessarily know how to communicate to our men. Like, uh, I'm an OBGYN, I've always taken care of women. Uh, early on in medical school, I said, I do not want to take care of men because they don't come to the doctor. <laughs> Yeah. And when yeah. they get there, they don't say anything. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm changing on that. Um, but, you know, as you're getting something started, you know, you got to find your niche and then yeah. you can can grow from there. But I think if I added men, they might have to get in through their their significant others, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it would change, it would change, keep it the way it is, it would change the dynamics of the group. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, so yeah, absolutely. so uh, I just wanted to throw it out there, though, but I, I respect <laughs> and appreciate uh, what you're doing there. Now, you are, you are also as busy as you are, Dr. Bernardo, you're also, you also host a podcast, I'm thinking, my gosh, this podcast works me, you know, how did she find time to do all of it? So my question to you is, what prompted you, firstly, to start a podcast? And then yeah. secondly, what do you try to do in your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a good example of when you're trying to be true to yourself, you will find a path. In my visits, I would at my notes, it would take me forever to do my notes because during my visit, I wasn't doing my note because I wanted to talk to my patient. And so education was really important to me. And in order to make my visits more efficient, but also give my patients what they needed, I started a podcast. And at first it was just the topics that women were coming with, coming in with all the time, like heavy periods, painful periods, um, you know, certain vaginal uh, infections and certain sexually transmitted diseases. These topics take a long time to discuss, which I didn't have. And so I started using it as a tool, you know, to say, you know, I would love to talk more with you about it. How about you go listen to episode, you know, so-and-so that'll give you more information. And then, you know, just call me back with any other questions. And so my need to educate is what drove it. And in the end, that podcast is what helped me figure out that I could help women in a different way. People started to listen to it. They said it was helpful. They enjoyed it. And that really started to imprint in my mind that, you know, I don't necessarily have to be in an office um, or in an OR to help women in this way. Uh, and it's been very rewarding. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And you're right. This is a, a great place for a free education. Just listening or mm -hmm. watching a podcast show that's mm -hmm. of interest to you. Mm -hmm. I know that you have talk, you talk to a lot of docs. Uh, on your podcast docs and also people who are nutritionists and the like. So what are you continuing to discover about health and wellness from your conversations with all of these professionals? What are some things you're learning? Yeah, absolutely. So podcasting, 
it's and and I don't know, and I, you'll probably agree with this. As a podcast, you're actually learning from your guests. So some of the things that I didn't believe before, you know, now I believe. Um, and you know, from reputable colleagues. So you know, I look at their body of work before they come on my podcast because I don't want to expose my audience to you know just any old thing. Um, but what I am learning is that there are definitely multiple ways to heal the body. There's definitely multiple ways to address mental and physical health. Um, uh, I had an OBGYN on who she actually is an herbalist and she does acupuncture. And I'm like, I would have thought those things were kind of frou-frou before, I'm just being honest, you know, maybe 15 years ago. Um, but there's actually data to show that it supports supports that it's it's helpful and so i i am just enjoying the podcast because not only am i learning uh, my patients are learning and one of my my purposes with the podcast is in, to empower people and if you don't know you don't know and so when you know better you do better so i'm continuing to learn um, and hopefully my listeners are are learning as well that's fantastic. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. So I've asked you a, a ton of questions already, but I want to ask this last one. Is there anything else you want to share with us that we have not touched on today? Yeah. So I always love to share with people that the spirit knows. Mm. Your spirit, your subconscious, your soul, your heart, whatever you want to call it, that there's something deep inside that knows what you need. And oftentimes we ignore it or discount it. Uh, I, for years, knew that I was, I was going in the wrong direction uh, and I didn't acknowledge that and I got burned out. And so I just want, really want to, um, to shout from the rooftops to your listeners that your body knows what it needs and you know what you need. Uh, and if you ignore it, you're missing out on opportunities to live the life that you're called to live. Mm -hmm. It's very important. And, and the other thing is that you have to give that, you got to turn up the volume on that voice that knows what you need because a culture which is sometimes louder, is likely going to contradict what you already know inside. And so there is, there's healing, there's healing uh, in listening uh, to your inner voice, your spirit, your soul, whatever you want to call it, there's healing in that. And that, that's the way that you get out of situations where you feel like um, you're not getting what you need. Mm -hmm. Well, you've just opened the door to a big discussion about spirituality. I'm going to save that. I'm going to ask you to come back, but <laughs> we can just spend some time talking about, about that. So that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Dr. Bernardo, it has been my pleasure being with you today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me and continued success on this. I love aligning with individuals who are trying to make the world a better place. So thank you again for having me. Wonderful. Well, you've been listening to the Possibility Action Network podcast. Our guest today has been Dr. Benita Bernardo. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton. Until next time, good day. <laughs>